my name's Jeff. Again, I said at the beginning, uh, happy to meet you if you're new and joining us. And we're in this series called The Table, and I was kind of probing my mind for some memories. What happens when you take different people of different backgrounds, maybe different cultures, different ethnicities, just different people with different stories, and put them around a common table? All kinds of things happen. And I was reminiscing to one of my favorite memories. I think I've shared this once before, but this was back when Kami and I were dating, and I will tell you this was definitely one of those, I'm going to marry this girl moments. Some of you know I graduated from college. Uh, we were dating. I went, I went, I was a missionary. I went on almost the other side of the world and wasn't really sure how that was going to play out in our dating relationship, but it turns out uh, my wife, girlfriend at the time, missed me more than she thought she was going to. I'll take that all. Yes, and uh, so we were doing good. And she came out to visit over the summer. And I had made a lot of friends in the year. And one of my friends was a guy named Alex and his dad. Some of you will know what this is. He worked for Jesus Film. So his dad was a missionary. But his dad didn't speak English. Alex spoke English. And so he's like, hey, you and Kami should come. I want you to meet my family. I'm sure my dad would love to share some stories about what he's seeing doing Jesus Film stuff. And so Kami and I went. And the place where I was, the hospitality culture is over the top. Like, they spend more than they should when you come as a guest, especially from another country, just to shower you. And, and, and the cuisine is different than here. Uh, and so a lot of the things I ate were good, but not everything I ate was good. But when you go to someone's house, they put everything on, on your plate for you. And I'm a fast eater, so I learned throughout the year, year to not eat too fast, because if I eat too fast, they're just going to keep piling more. And actually, my practice is to eat what I don't like first, so I'm like, I've got to save it for the end, or it's going to keep coming. So Kami's with me, and this meal, I don't remember everything in the meal, it was fine, but there was an all, basically an all-tomato salad, which I'm fine with, but it's one of Kami's least favorite vegetables, so all-tomato and then they had, and I don't even know what you would call it, but it was basically a sheep liver paste. And so, you know, both Kami and I are working our plates and definitely the sheep liver. You're trying to figure out where, where does this, how, how does this go down? And I look over at Kami and I, I asked her about this later. It's so spot on, but she's like eating everything but the tomatoes and the sheep liver. And she takes her spoon and she, we're just listening. You know, my friend Alex is translating. So you got a lot of time and I see her, she spreads it all out over her plate because she's trying to think, have I eaten enough that it's not rude to leave this on my plate? But again, like where else does this happen? Where else would you force yourself to eat tomato sheep liver paste? Only around a table with people who are showing you unbelievable generosity and kindness. And so Kami realizes it's too much and so she puts this, this giant spoonful of sheep liver paste tomato. And Alex is translating, and she holds it in front of her mouth for about two minutes. I know. She looks like she's listening, but she's thinking the whole time, can I do this? And finally, bottoms up. And I'm like, I'm totally marrying this girl. Right? That was awesome. Like, what a, what a great moment. But, but my point is, like, you do things around a table. When you're in somebody's presence, eye to eye with them, experiencing their love and hospitality that you may not do anywhere. I would not eat sheep liver paste anywhere else. Unless if you have me over and you, I guess I'll do it as a, I mean, if you, I'll show, you know, but just with friends because it's an act of kindness. 
So we're kind of moving into the second half of our series, kind of the second reason why I wanted to do this. The, the first half, what we've been doing is we spent a lot of time in the Gospels and we've been looking at the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, and what Jesus has to say about it. It's his idea and how in a, in a, in a sacred mystery, he meets us in the bread and in the cup and he's, he's here with us. Uh, we confess more than we can explain, but we just, that's what Jesus has taught us. And so we've been talking about that from a variety of different angles. And last week we looked at kind of even the bigger picture of what, it, what Jesus was doing as he kind of went from table to table, even in his ministry. And what I want to do now is we're going to hone in more. We're going to be kind of reading more of some of Paul's stuff and what he was doing in the early church as they were practicing communion, what Paul thought they were doing really, and how this played out. And, you know, Nolan even kind of prayed for it there at the end, but we'll, we'll primarily be honing in on this idea of unity. Uh, the reason why I want to do this, some of you have even asked me, are you thinking about this? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm thinking about this. But we're about to enter into 2024, which happens to be another election year cycle in our current uh, history as a, as a country. And I don't know, I don't know that it was like this 20 years ago, but these election times have become more and more and more and more divisive. Uh, I won't put this on you. I'll just put this in my own terms and you can decide whether this is true for you or not. But I have a feeling outside of this church gathering, I will be encouraged to be divisive. I have a feeling that at some point in 2024, I will have a deep yearning to enforce my will on somebody else. And as I drift down that road, there's a good chance that I will be tempted to view another human being made in the image of the living God as someone I hate. And I will find all kinds of language and rhetoric just within my arm's reach to justify my hatred. I just have a feeling this is going to happen for me. I don't know if it will happen for you, but I have a sense that it will. And I have a strong heart as a pastor to make sure that we navigate these waters in Christ-like fashion. I think our church wants to. I don't think I'm alone. Last week, we talked about how what Jesus believed was happening when we gathered for the table was that we're changing the world. In other words, we're being something the world has never seen anywhere else, ever. (laughs) What an opportunity. One author says it this way, The church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. And when this happens, we show the world what love Justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are designed by God to be. The church is, when it's operating according to God's design, God's show and tell for the world to see how God wants us to live as a family. Now I know, because I've talked to you, I know that's not everyone's experience that the church isn't always that for you, but that's what we're meant to be and that's what we're aiming for here at Crossview. And as I was thinking along these lines, there are smarter people than me who probably already have a perfect plan for what we all need to do in 2024. And as you hear them talk, you can share with me what they say. I'm happy to listen. (laughs) 
But my current season as a pastor is I just feel called to keep pointing us to Jesus. And what would Jesus say in times like this? Now, I don't know exactly. Jesus probably would have a lot to say. It's never overly simplistic. But I feel pretty good about saying this. I believe if we were to ask Jesus, how do we maintain unity in 2024? He would say, I already gave you a meal. Keep practicing it. Practice it as I taught you to. So that'll be our primary thing in 2024, to maintain our unity. We're going to continue to regularly, whether it's once a week or once a month, practice this meal and see if it changes us to be something the world has never seen before. And then see if we are then sent out into this world that is divisive and broken and angry and rage-filled and envious and fearful and see if we can be a difference. And see if the light that we learn here from Jesus that we re- can overwhelm the darkness. I mean, I, that's a calling that I can get into. And this morning, what I, what I want to invite you to do is not assume that you already have unity figured out. I think one of our dangers, and we do this in all kinds of ways, is we oversimplify things to make them easier because some of our idols are comfort, ease, and safety. We want church to be comfortable, easy, and safe. I'm not sure it's meant to be. Those are idols. And so we simplify unity and, and kind of mess with its definition. And we make, we make unity seem like something that's really easy. We want it to be easy. The reality is unity is hard. Even the text we're going to look at, it's hard. It's re- isn't it hard if I think I'm right on something and you think you're right? Isn't it hard for us to humble ourselves and listen to one another? It's getting harder and harder in the world we live in to find common ground. Even in a church where we have the ultimate common ground in Jesus, right? It's it's hard. If you think it's easy, you're just fooling yourself. It's hard. Unity is hard. And I was just thinking, you might have your own, you might have your own things, but I think, I think I personally oversimplify and get unity wrong when I, I start to think that it means uniformity. That we all just have to be exactly the same in everything. I mean, that, of course, that's not true, but I, I can think that. And I also, and this is some of my personality wiring, I, I begin to think that unity is just a lack of conflict, right? Like, like we just come into church and there's butterflies and birds singing and there's just no conflict, right? I don't think that, I mean, even the text we're going to, that's not what unity is in the church. <laughs> but we can think that. We, we don't like conflict. I know that it's hard, but unity is hard. We might have to, in a sense, fight for unity because there's going to be a million forces pushing us away from it. <laughs> but we also want to understand what unity is, and we're going to do that over the course of the next few weeks. What I want to do this morning, then, is answer, not answer. I want to propose a question that I actually can't answer. That's what I want to do. I can't answer this question, but I've been asking it myself all week. I, I want to raise this question How in the world did the Apostle Paul figure out this unity thing so fast? And it took Peter forever. (laughs) Because what I want to do is, we'll get there in the end, but you and I want to think we're Paul on this. We're probably Peter. And you're not going to like it when we read through the Peter story, but if you're honest, yeah, I'm probably more like Peter than Paul. We're more like Peter, and we'll get there by the end. And I'll even make this clear. I was, I was just thinking about this. Have any of you ever tried to make your grandma's secret recipe? 
and you've got everything labeled perfectly and you put in all the ingredients exactly like grandma did, but it's not what grandma made. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, that's Peter. I'll show you when we get to the end. Peter and Paul have almost all the same ingredients. And Peter's got three years training in the school of Jesus. And Paul gets this so much faster than he does. Why? I don't, I don't know why. It's just the question I've been asking. And I think I've been asking it because I'm more like Peter than Paul. It gives me freedom to be on this journey, to not have it all figured out. So some of you may know where we're going to start. We're going to be in Galatians. Our main text this morning is in Galatians chapter 2. In the middle of this section, there's a lot of theology where Paul is kind of working through some of this Jew-Gentile stuff that I'm not going to get into. To do it right, we would preach the whole book of Galatians, or Romans, if you want. I mean, Paul talks about this, and yeah, but it, he's just given a summary here, so I'm not going to—there's other things I'm focusing on in this series, uh, but if it intrigues you, I, I just keep reading in Galatians. But Paul's beginning, he's really upset with what's going on in Galatia and, and the gospel, the way it's being presented there. And we're going to get to part of, the, part of the heart of the matter in this section. But up until this point in the letter, he's been kind of talking about his relationship with Jerusalem. Again, you can read it on your own. I'm going to pick up in verse 11. He's in Antioch. And Antioch, really, if you study Acts, is kind of like maybe the first multi-ethnic Jesus community just breaking forth. It kind of becomes the hub of missionary work in the early church. And this is what we read. When Peter came, he came from Jerusalem, he came from Israel. When Peter came to Antioch, and again, if you think that unity is all about butterflies and birds chirping, <laughs> Paul says, when he came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. This is the apostle Peter. I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. He was jeopardizing unity because of what he was doing. Uh, Peter comes. This is, this is just, this is what's unfolding. And it, you're going to see as I keep reading, it's, it's, this is like a public thing. Paul says he says this in front of other people. We don't know the exact context, but there's plenty of reason to think this is happening at a gathering of the church where in the, in the early church, they wouldn't just do the bread in the cup like we do, but they actually had a meal. And so this is probably the Lord's Supper where this is taking place, which is why it's so public. And just even, I mean, any, any, all of this is wrong to Paul, but even a step further. And like, how could we be doing this at the Lord's table? We don't know that for sure, but it's likely. But when Peter first arrived, verse 12, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, I'm also going to come back to that phrase because I'm going to invite you at the end to think about your own friends of James. Who is James? This is James. Acts tells us he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, kind of after the church was beginning. He's the brother of Jesus, the author of the book of James. So there's these friends of James, and, we, and you have so many, we want to know so much more. There's so much we don't know. This is all we know. These friends of James come, and they're, they're pre Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Gentiles are just non-Jewish people. So anyone who's not Jewish is Gentile, right? And some of you know, we're not going to get on all this this morning, but the Jews had a very, you've heard the word kosher, right? They have a way of eating food that they believe honored God. And so when you, when you were eating together, there were, there were things that had to happen for Jews, and so there were all kinds of issues. And, and 
And what the early church believed is that Jesus had overwhelmed and fulfilled all those issues. And so, Jew or Greek, you eat together at the Lord's table. Well, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. Again, for them, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, this crew would say, well, you have to be Jewish to be Christian because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. So you have to get circumcised. That's the ultimate identity marker for, for the Jewish people all the way back to Abraham. So as a result, other Jewish believers, and this is, again, we want to know more, we don't know more. All we know is that something was going on where it was so persuasive, Peter buys into it. Other Jewish believers follow Peter into what Paul calls his his hypocrisy. And then Paul's beside himself. Even Barnabas, who's been with me from the beginning on these missions, was let alone. This was very persuasive. Verse 14, and this will even raise the stakes a little bit. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, it's fascinating. Because Peter's not like spitting out heresy. Paul's talking about how you gather as the people of God is part of the gospel. The words you say and the life you live go together. Or you're misrepresenting the gospel. They weren't following the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter in front of everybody else. For the sake of unity. Since you a Jew by birth have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile. Why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? All right. Let's work through this a little bit. Peter and Paul are at a bit of a place of difference. And what's interesting is you read more of Paul, if you read Romans or you keep reading in Galatians, Paul does not think that Peter should abandon his kosher eating. I mean, this is the thing. Unity in Christ, this is one of the things that we'll have to wrestle with. Unity in Christ does not mean uniformity. It does not mean that we eradicate all of our differences. What it does mean is that in Christ, we find a way to transcend our differences and come together as one family. So Peter may eat kosher all the time in private, and when he dines with the Gentiles, he doesn't have to compromise kosher, and they would honor that, but he still sits, they sit together, they eat together. And Paul has plenty to say about whether, I mean, Jesus has fulfilled, we'll even look in, in that next in a second, but, but, but the point is that you transcend these differences in Christ. That's one of the things that happens. For Paul, different people coming together is maybe the ultimate evidence that Jesus is truly the Lord of all people and all nations. You understand, if one culture garners a superiority over other cultures, is Jesus Lord of all cultures or just that one? If one nation garners a superiority over all nations, is Jesus Lord of all nations or just that one? For Paul, you kidding me? Jesus is Lord of all, and it always needs to be that way. And when we gather, it needs to look that way. It's a theological debate, but not like our Protestant Reformation where we're debating grace versus works. It's a theology debate in the sense of what kind of community constitutes a community that's created by the message of the good news. So rather than a physical building, 
Paul would say God's true temple is now the people of Jesus Christ bound to him and to each other in a community of love. At its core, church unity isn't about the blessings of harmony, and it's not simply a beneficial byproduct of kind Christian people avoiding conflict. Unity is essential to the mission of God in the world. When the world sees formerly divided people who used to be filled with hatred, envy, anger, rage, fear, shame, transformed and united into a new kind of people, a new creation of love, goodness, and kindness, the world will believe. That's literally what Jesus prays in John 17. (laughs) When the world sees people once divided by race, color, class, and tradition, now embracing one another as brothers and sisters, the world will believe because the world has never seen anything like it. The world has never seen anything like it. So let's keep reading. Verse 15. Again, this is where we're going to kind of get into more theology than I'm going to wade through uh, this morning. But he says, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. He's not saying Jews aren't sinners. Read Romans. Just start at the first three chapters. Jews are sinners. Gentiles are sinners. But Jews have been given certain things that are good from God, like the law, which is what he's going to continue to talk about. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. What Paul is saying here and elsewhere is that the only identity marker for coming to this table is faith in Jesus. That's it. Humanity loves to come up with all kinds of reasons why I belong and you don't, but Paul says they're gone now. All that's gone. If you have faith in Jesus, allegiance to Jesus, and we're talking more than just lip service, right? But you have aligned your life with his kingdom, then you're welcomed at this table. All the other stuff has been, again, the kingdom is turning things upside down, and now the last are first. It's just, it's the holistic thing that Jesus is doing. Verse 17, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. I think, I think what he's saying here, and we're going to keep moving, but I think he's saying if, if we eat with the Gentiles because Jesus has said we should, and it's a sin to eat with the Gentiles, then what we're saying is that Christ is promoting sin, and of course he's not doing that, right? He's just trying to work through this argument. Verse 18, rather, but but the real issue and what he's after Peter on, rather I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. Even when we practice communion in a few minutes, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians and I'm going to talk about this new covenant because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus is doing something new. He's fulfilled the old covenant, and so now we're into something new. The Spirit of God has been poured out. We're enabled and equipped to live a very different kind of life. Verse 19, for when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for Christ. I want to hone in on verse 20 this morning. My old self has been crucified with Christ. I mean, there's a, a verse worth memorizing if you've never come across this verse. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ himself who lives in me. 
So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God. And listen to how personal this is. A lot of places when Paul's teaching, he's teaching about how God has died for all. But here it's just so personal for Paul. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And he wraps up this session by, section by saying, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. But because Christ has died, then all that is needed is faith, trust, belief in, in what he did for me on the cross. Uh, I want to look at verse 20 a little bit. Paul feels truly loved by God. The love of Christ is what fuels him. It's what compels him. And we're going to need to talk about this as we go further into unity. Love is not warm feelings, as it's so often defined in modern-day Babylon. Love always expresses itself in action toward the one who is loved. For Paul here, he talks about love in the action of the Son of God giving himself up for me. It's not just feelings, it's action. So, you know, we talk a lot about holding things in tension. Let me say it this way, because I think this is important. Love does not mean I will love you if you do what I want. Or we will accept you in our church if you live our way. That's not love, that's coercion. At the same time, love does not mean toleration. You do what you want and I'll leave you alone and I'll do what I want, and you leave me alone. Now, there's somewhere in the middle there where we, we, we run together towards Jesus, and we are challenging each other from time to time because we need it. Peter needed it from Paul. Uh, we don't let each other just do whatever they want, but we also don't coerce and use fear and manipulation tactics. There's a more beautiful way in Jesus. And that's what Paul is trying to help these churches get. You could say it this way. Love is a rugged commitment to someone. A rugged unity is going to involve a rugged commitment to your brothers and sisters. Involves action. It's going to involve presence. You need to show up at the table. You need to be present among us. It involves advocacy, companionship over time as we walk toward the kingdom of God, which means that we grow together. We need each other to grow in holiness and love and righteousness together so that we can look more and more like Jesus because that's what we were made to do and be. And as it relates to communion, I, I hadn't noticed this before this week, but the verb here, the Greek verb for Jesus giving himself up or handing himself over is the same Greek word that we say every, day, every time we do communion pretty much. The night in which he was betrayed is actually the night in which he gave himself up. And I was just thinking, actually one of the commentators I was reading said it this way. I like this. Paul is using the standard technical language of the church. But in this case, he puts all the emphasis, the correct emphasis theologically, not on what others did to Christ, but on the reality that his death was in fact ultimately something he himself did for his people. Paul is just celebrating in a surprisingly personal way. This is what Jesus voluntarily did. This is what Jesus chose to do. It's not divine transaction. It's a divine choice. Paul says, this is the son of God who loves me. And he showed his love for me by 
giving himself up for me. The ultimate expression of the heart of God. It's really cool. But I want to keep moving. Uh, We could, again, say more about this stuff. But in Galatians chapter 3, to kind of show you how Paul thinks through this a little bit as we're talking about this ethnic divide of Jew and Gentile. Chapter 3, verse 26 He continues on in this longer argument, right? He says, for you are all children of God through what? Faith in Christ Jesus. That's that's the marker. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. We're meant to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to experience the life of Jesus, to have him live through us. And then he says this, which is really an idealistic and radical thing to say. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All these ways that we've dreamed up to bring about division and who's better than who and who belongs and who doesn't belong gone. In Christ Jesus, at the table, we are one. And he goes a step further, again, as he's addressing this whole Jew and Gentile thing, specifically in Galatia. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. (laughs) You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. This is what God has always been doing, all the way back to Genesis 12. It was always about blessing Abraham so that that blessing would bless all the families of the world. Always. And Paul sees it, and he knows it. He makes the point that anyone can join the family if they give allegiance to Jesus as the risen king of the world. And here he highlights three categories. The first is this ethnic identity. The second, which we'll talk more about next week, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 next week, the socioeconomic categories of slave and free and what that meant in the Roman world. He also talks about gender. We know how we can divide the world by gender. But the issue in Galatia is only the first of those three And what it shows is that Paul has a larger framework and a way of thinking about the unity of the family of God. What's at stake in Galatia is just one way that the church could all make this go terribly wrong. There are so many ways that we've figured out in our rivalry to say you're important and you're not important. You're in and you're out. You belong and you don't belong. Paul says the only thing at the table that matters is if you believe in Jesus. That's it. If you're a human being, you're a candidate to be in the family of God, and your entry card is allegiance to Jesus Christ. And again, for Paul, this isn't just an implication or a consequence. It's basic to the message of the gospel. That's what he's saying. The message doesn't mean what it means if there isn't a community of people doing it, living it, alongside their proclamation of it. Peter's not saying heresy. He's talking about the risen Jesus, but he's not living it. And Paul says it's hypocrisy. And you're messing up the gospel. Because Jesus Christ is the crucified, risen king of all nations. And if his people are as divided as everywhere else, then they aren't actually demonstrating their allegiance to a universal king. So let's go. I told you I want to just look briefly at this Peter and Paul dynamic. In Acts chapter 10, so, so, so let me say it this way. I was thinking about this. 
I mean, is it because Paul had a revelation that, that was profound? Because Paul did. I'm not going to read this now, but in his, he, t- he gives his conversion story like three times in the book of Acts. And part of meeting the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus was Jesus saying, you're going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, right out of the gate, he's commissioned to go. But I'm going to read in a second to you just so you can feel this. Peter also had a pretty profound experience. (laughs) Paul knows his Bible, but Peter knows his Bible. Now, Paul may know it better than Peter because he was a Pharisee. But Paul almost had more unlearning to do than Peter. This is, we always talk about learning to read the Old Testament with Jesus as your guide. Paul had a very strict way of reading the Old Testament, which would have been his Bible. But after encountering the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit illuminating his mind to what that means, he went back and he reread the Bible and he was like, whoa, this story is even more amazing than I ever imagined. And he changes everything. I mean, talk about the ultimate unlearning and relearning in light of Jesus. But both Peter and Paul know their Bibles. And you might say, well, maybe one of them has more. I mean, Paul has a ton of conviction, but so does Peter, right? It's not about who has more conviction. But what's, what's, I mean, I don't know. That's what I mean. I don't know what's different. I mean, and Peter even had three more years with Jesus. But let me just read this to you just so, again, I want you to identify with Peter this morning. It's a story, you can start it on your own on Acts chapter 10, verse 1, about a guy named Cornelius. He's a Gentile, a Roman army, a centurion officer. But I'm going to pick up in verse 9. The next day is Cornelius' messengers... We're nearing the town. Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon. He was hungry. And while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open. And something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. And in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles and birds. And a voice says to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Now Peter declares, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. Right, this is, this is, you even hear this language in what Paul is saying in Galatians. Peter, don't tear down what, what Christ has built up, right? And don't try to rebuild what Christ has torn down. Verse 15, the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And then if you know the story of Peter, it's just funny. This vision is repeated three times. <laughs> it's always three times for Peter. And then it's pulled up to heaven. Now, Peter's perplexed, which I think I would be too. What could the vision mean? And and just at this like divine coincidence, right? Just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house standing outside the gate. They asked if a man named Simon Peter was there. Meanwhile, Peter's still puzzling over the vision. Then the Holy Spirit says to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry for I have sent them. Peter goes downstairs. I'm the man you're looking for. Verse 22, they, we were sent by Cornelius. He's a devout God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A God-fear would have been an, a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel, but didn't go all the way. A Gentile man. In other words, <laughs> I want to worship this God, but circumcision feels like a little too much. So I'm going to worship this God, but not go all the way. That's what a God-fear is in the book of Acts. So Cornelius is one of these guys. He's worshipping the God of Israel He's not circumcised. Well, a holy, a holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he could hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay the night. The next day they go. They arrive in Caesarea, verse 24, the following day. Cornelius is waiting for them. Verse 25 and 26, he bows down to Peter. Peter's like, whoa, I'm no God or angel. I'm just a man. Don't do this. Verse 28, Peter told them, you know it's against our laws. Listen to this. You know it's against our laws. Just division. 
for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you, <laughs> even to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think, of, God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. And then Cornelius tells the whole story. And I love verse 33. So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. Acts chapter 10 happens before Galatians chapter 2. You understand my conundrum. How does Peter not get it after that? Are you kidding me? But he doesn't get it. Paul is the one, Paul's the only one who really, even Barnabas is led astray. You see, what I want to say is, I mean, and, and here's the thing I'll say about Peter. We've talked about this before. We want to be like Paul because that, that feels like a lot easier. <laughs> just, just, just zap me so I get it. But, but more often than not, we're like Peter and we learn through failure. We learn through a loving brother or sister helping us see the truth. <laughs> and we learn through our tears. And that's how Peter learns in the Gospels. We want to be like Paul, but we're more like Peter. And I know it's good pastoral practice to give you an application that you can apply quickly before you forget it. <laughs> but as we talked about last week, what Jesus is doing with these parables is indirect communication. trying to Because if he's direct, we'll just ignore him. And we'll make it fit into our already established paradigm. But Jesus' kingdom is flipping everything around and upside down and rearranging everything. And so, there's, so, so sometimes we're like Peter. We've got to hear it again. We even say the truth, but we're not living it. We don't get it. We've got to stumble and fail again and again and again. I know we don't want to hear that, but we have to. And I'll present this to you, and you might forget in the weeks and months ahead, but if, but if this resonates with you, or maybe God will apply this in another way, but I just want to give you one scenario. And if it resonates, I'm just going to trust that the Holy Spirit will bring this up in his timing in your life in the right place. But we have three holidays coming up, right, in our cultural calendar, Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. And my hunch is at some point over these next three holidays, you will be with your own version of James's people. And what I mean by that is people from your hometown. You've left home and you've started to eat with Gentiles because you've seen the glory of the gospel of God. And you're all in on this new thing that Jesus is doing. But what happens when we get back around people from our hometown? So I'm serious. You go for Thanksgiving. You go for your learn. Our church is growing and changing to be more like Jesus. You're sitting around the table talking and all of a sudden you feel. Maybe the spirit of God helps you feel that Babylonian turn. And everything is fear, 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 fear. Aren't you afraid of? Aren't you afraid of? Aren't you afraid? You know what I'm afraid? Everything is shame, 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 shame. Everything is blame and accusation. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. And there's no hope in the conversation anymore. And it's what you grew up with, so you just want to go right back into it. What I want to say is pay attention. Let that be. So, so you don't get called out in front of all of us. <laughs> Let that be your Peter moment. Jesus is gentle. He doesn't want to embarrass you, but he wants you to learn, and he cares about the unity of this church. Let those be your Peter and Paul moments. Just, oh my goodness. I know the truth, but I'm not living it here. 
I'm, I'm, I'm a part of all the division that's happening. We don't want to bring that here. We want to be different. What if there's another way to be in 2024 that the rest of the world knows nothing about? But we're a part of this mystery, this thing that God is doing in the world that's new. It's different. It's other. <laughs> so that's why. That's why we will continue to practice communion regularly because we're more like Peter than Paul. Because most of us haven't figured this out yet. Because we got to keep coming to the table and learning again and again and again. (laughs) Because the very gospel that we believe and trust is all about creating a new kind of people in this world. And that new kind of people, that family, that fellowship begins at this table. I mean, Paul may very well say that the unity of Jesus' disciples is the main symbol that Jesus is who he says he is, King of all kings and Lord of all the nations. Yes, while we are in the world, we continue to experience the old order marked by prejudice and inequality and segregation and greed and malice, envy, domination, fear, shame, all of that. But when we gather in the name of Jesus... (laughs) When we eat at this table, we receive a glimpse of the world that he is making. One marked by unity, reconciliation, forgiveness, dignity, generosity, service, and love. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Amen.